Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the J3U Podcast. Uh, with me, as always, is my co-host, Luke Miller. And today, we have on uh, Greg, Greg Potter, who's a PhD in sleep and nutrition, also has a master's in, in exercise science, works with a variety of athletes. Um, I have came across him by looking at some of his other information he's put out just around sleep and being in the competitive bodybuilding scene. Sleep is a, well, for one, it's one of our biggest recovery tools that we have, but probably the most underutilized tool that many of us make in or uh, underprioritize. Uh, which we just check off the nutrition block, the training block. A lot of people's sleep just kind of gets shoved in there. And, and there's repercussions to that, especially around physique. Um, and then even there's aspects within our contest prep where like sleep just gets really crappy and shitty. And it's like part of prep. But maybe there's some things that we can do to try to improve sleep quality in those situations or just, just in general. And so that's why... I wanted to have um, Dr. Potter on to, to talk about this and try to see what we can do. So, Dr. Potter, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? Pleasure, and I'm very well, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, awesome. Uh, it looks like a behind you a bright, sunny day. So, um, we can talk about... Rain, actually, the last couple of weeks. It's been oh. flooding. <laughs> right in the last couple of days all right on it's uh it's been we're, we're in texas both luke and i so it's been like pretty ungodly hot here <laughs> but we're both like indoor hobbits that just work on our computers anyway so we work yeah it's fine <laughs> so we're, <laughs> we're surviving um but yeah just to, to bring on here about sleep i think just setting some groundwork of so people understand it kind of just what sleep is and the, the importance around it. Um, I know there's a lot of health aspects to get into, maybe just touch on those, but then if you could ring that back in, like, so our listeners like, Hey, realize like sleep's important for building muscle and fat loss and uh, the application of sleep importance around that too. Okay. So no, quite subjects in there. I know. <laughs> we'll see where I end up. But I'll begin with a brief discussion about sleep and health, and I'll try and make it relevant to your listeners. So if we think about things through the lens of physique competitors, then I think there are several subjects that are particularly relevant. So one, of course, is your acute training performance. And based on the studies done so far, we know that if people have consecutive nights of poor sleep, then their strength endurance and exercises such as bench presses and leg presses tends to be compromised. It doesn't seem to be so compromised in isolation exercises and maximal strength seems to be less effective than strength endurance. But my guess is that maximal strength is affected. It's just that a lot of those studies have looked at very simple tasks such as hand grip dynamometry as opposed to one of you guys doing a, a triple in the squat. So there's acute training performance, but there are of course 
a variety of other variables to consider. So one would be your injury risk. And based on the research done so far, it seems that over time, not getting enough sleep predisposes people to musculoskeletal injuries. And there hasn't been enough study to be able to say definitively that this type of sleep pattern associates with that type of injury, but there's clearly a relationship there. There are other things that can take you out of training, of course. One would be picking up infections, whether that's the coronavirus or common cold. And there have been some entertaining studies in which people have been inoculated with certain viruses, such as the Rhine virus. And if people don't get enough sleep around the time that they're given that virus, they're much more likely to develop symptoms than if they do get sufficient sleep. Similarly, when people are vaccinated, if they're deprived of sleep around the vaccination, their antibody titers shortly after the vaccination will be compromised relative to people who've had enough sleep. So again, if you're trying to maximize your training, then sleep is key to immune function. Having a strong immune system is going to help you train better. With respect to body composition specifically, there's been a large body of research looking at the effects of insufficient sleep on things like food consumption, but also on the metabolism of the foods that you consume. And if you look at all of the studies that have done, been done to date and you weight them according to their strength, and it seems that on average, people who've had insufficient sleep consume roughly 250, 250 calories more per day than when they've had enough sleep. That's about the number of calories in a Snickers bar. It doesn't sound like that much, but if you multiply that by 365 days in a year, then that's roughly the amount of energy in just over 12 kilos of fat tissue. I'm not saying that it would cause someone to gain 12 kilos or to be 12 kilos heavier than if they'd had sufficient sleep that whole time, but I think it drives the point home. And the other side of the energy balance equation, of course, is energy expenditure. And sleep deprivation doesn't really seem to affect energy expenditure that much in the short term. In the short term is an important caveat because there's been a little bit of work looking at the effects of sleep loss on body composition. So there was some studies roughly 10 years ago, looking at what happens when you take people and you put them on a calorie restricted diet. And in one condition, people had sufficient sleep and in another condition, they had insufficient sleep. And after a couple of weeks, the group that had less sleep lost a similar amount of body weight, but they lost about 55% less mass as fat mass. They lost more fat-free mass too. And somewhat related to that, there's been a little bit of work in the last couple of years looking at what happens when people are deprived of sleep at the level of skeletal muscle. And it seems that muscle protein synthesis is compromised by sleep deprivation. You can somewhat offset that through exercise and people haven't looked at resistance training much so far. Much of the work's been done looking at high intensity intermittent training. So I think repeated cycle sprints. But my guess is that those findings probably extrapolate the types of exercise that you guys are more interested in. Dr. Potter, <clears throat> I think I've read that study I think you mentioned and where they're in a calorie deficit and they're sleep deprived and I think defining like sleep deprived people might hear that and think, Oh, well I'm getting enough sleep, right? What is sleep deprived? I think 
in that study, it was only like a, a one or two hour decrease per night, I think, in sleep, if um, like seven to five hours or something like that. But maybe if you can mention just that aspect, just so people can have the context of what that means. Absolutely. The study that I was thinking was a study done by Arlett and Edith Chaver in, I think, 2011. And I think in the sleep restriction group, the people might have had something like five and a half hours in bed per night. Mm. And for 18 to 64-year-old adults, current National Sleep Foundation recommendations are that adults get seven to nine hours of sleep per night, given that the time that you spend in bed isn't all sleep, unfortunately. You probably need more like eight to 10 hours in bed per night to meet those sleep numbers. So five and a half hours in bed is quite a dramatic amount of sleep loss when you multiply that over the course of two weeks. There have been other studies that have recapitulated those results more recently too. But just to add a nuance, when we speak about sleep deprivation, what we're really discussing is the complete absence of sleep. Okay. Whereas sleep restriction is limiting the amount of time that someone has in bed. And that might be through going to bed later and getting up earlier. It might be just through going to bed later. It might be just through getting up earlier. And those different changes do somewhat affect some of the consequences of the sleep loss that people experience, but we probably don't really need to go there. Yeah, no, I, I just want to touch on it because people like hear like, well, I'm getting enough sleep and maybe they sleep six hours. I feel okay. It's like, well, that still might not be within the range of what's the recommendation or might be within the sleep restriction aspect and causing these other detriments to uh, recovery or the other things that we were mentioning. So th yeah, thanks for hitting on that. Um, sorry to interrupt, but I know we were, you were just leaving on a, there's a decrease in muscle protein synthesis at the skeletal muscle level with sleep restriction. Mm -hmm. um, I, I assume, is it, would it be have an increase in muscle catabolism as well? Since like in these studies where we see like there's a greater loss of muscle mass and caloric restriction, it's maybe not just on the protein synthesis side, but also on the you know, uh, muscle catabolism side as well. I don't think it's been as well studied, but my understanding is that muscle protein breakdown is less effective than muscle protein synthesis. Okay. And what I'll add is that it's muscle protein synthesis that much more strongly determines changes in skeletal muscle protein balance than muscle protein breakdown. And for that reason, I, I think it makes sense to generally focus on that. There are also potentially some pitfalls to trying to limit muscle protein breakdown. And I, I know you guys are, are very well versed in this and I haven't looked at this research recently, but obviously the muscle proteins that you have do over time, accumulate some problems you can have protein misfolding that type of thing and so if you prevent muscle protein breakdown from occurring then you can have the accumulation of what's effectively relatively dysfunctional muscle tissue you don't want to limit breakdown too much you really want to focus on maximizing synthesis or at least that's that's my understanding no that that makes sense because <laughs> we can never like completely stop you you want to you want protein turnover to happen but from a bodybuilding, at least skeletal muscle aspect, we hope we're in this net positive uh, serve, you know, balance of proteins. So we're accruing mu new muscle tissue or increasing muscle tissue. But you now that that makes sense. Um, 
then I guess to touch on maybe uh, adipose tissue with sleep restriction and how that's kind of impact as well. And a lot of people bring up um, the, like the, the word right now is always insulin sensitivity. Um, you throw that around, people like perk their ears up and are ready to like listen, but uh, there's much more to it than that. But um, yeah, I guess on like maybe on the liver, on adipose tissue, was the impact there for on sleep restriction? Sure. So with respect to the liver, one of the changes that takes place when people haven't had enough sleep is you see a general increase in sympathetic activity in the autonomic or automatic nervous system. And one potential consequence of that is increased glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis in the liver. And if that's unopposed, then that's going to contribute to hyperglycemia. And over time, that can contribute to insulin resistance. And then with respect to fat tissue, there has been a bit of research looking at adipose tissue per se and the effects of insufficient sleep on things like insulin sensitivity, insulin sensitivity within adipocytes themselves. Again, showing that the adipocytes do become relatively insulin resistant, insulin resistant after insufficient sleep. So it seems that all of these different tissues are somewhat affected. And of course, the net result of that is that systemic insulin resistance tends to occur. And, and that's been shown by meta-analyses in much the same way that meta-analyses have shown that people tend to gain body fat and eat more food and they don't really burn more calories. So the net result of all of that is, is bad news. And then there are, of course, other health consequences too. So if you look at the cardiovascular system, then poor sleep can contribute to high blood pressure. If you look at brain function, then probably all aspects of cognition and mood are negatively affected by poor sleep. Your reaction time will drop, your working memory won't be as sharp, your ability to learn new information will be compromised, your ability to switch your attention in a, in a way that is helpful will also deteriorate. And of course, over time, if people sleep very poorly, that can contribute to mood disorders such as depression and anxiety. And I, I don't want all of this to, to sound too morbid. I'm just trying to give people an idea about just how pervasive the effects of poor sleep are. And I just want to add a couple of comments. One is that so far I've, I've largely focused on consequences of insufficient sleep, but I want to make it clear that when we speak about sleep health, we're not just talking about getting enough sleep. That's an important dimension of sleep health. But there are other dimensions too. One of them is sleep timing. If you're trying to sleep at a time of day which your body's clock isn't promoting sleep, as is often true of shift workers, then the amount of sleep that you get and the quality of the sleep that you get will be compromised. Related to sleep quality, there are sub-dimensions of that. So one is the time it takes you to fall asleep. It's called sleep latency. One is sleep efficiency, which is the proportion of time that you're in bed that you're actually asleep. One is the electrophysiology that's taking place in the brain. So your sleep stages that many people will be familiar with, which are broken down into non-REM sleep and REM sleep, REM standing for rapid eye movement sleep. And then there are some other things that take place during sleep that are relevant too. So how well you breathe, for example. I'm guessing that you guys, being the size that you are, might be familiar with conditions such as sleep apnea. 
<laughs> yeah, on CPAPs, you know, it was uh, very impactful for, for sure. And recovery, how I, how I felt during the day, I, I would fall asleep at work. I could fall asleep behind a car while I was stopped at a light, you know. So um, not only diminished life quality and my function, but the, the secondary to that was gym performance, growing recovery. But uh, also there's the health consequences as well, too. So, um, no, yeah. Sorry. Please continue. Yeah. No worries. And then the other dimension of, of sleep health that I mentioned is just the variability of your sleep. So having regular sleep is very helpful if, if what you seek is recovery from exercise, but also general health. So that's, that's a bit of background information about the effects of sleep on biology. But of course, there are knock-on effects of everything that I just mentioned too. So for example, if you're constantly sleepy because you have sleep apnea, which hasn't been diagnosed, you're not using CPAP or some sort of jaw repositioning device or tongue repositioning device, then you're going to be prone to traffic accidents. As yeah. one example. And there are several high profile instances of disasters that have taken place that have been in part attributed to people losing sleep. So Chernobyl was one of those. No, that's, that's all very interesting. And it, I think people can, people don't think about the other aspects. You just think of like in bedtime is probably what a lot of people first start with, which I think about nutrition because we can talk about like, and I know a pyramid of hierarchy is not, I, I'm not, I'm not huge on those because I think everything can be important in the aspect and um, how do you rank these things? Do you really need to rank them? But anyway, you know, you might have your total calories and, you know, what macros you have, the, the types of foods that can, can make those macros, then when your nutrient timing is, where you're eating those meals, your routine of those meals. We know in bodybuilding, like all that stuff adds up to make the, the, the best approach as far as your outcomes. Well, sleep, just like you mentioned, is, is the same way. We have like your total bedtime, the quality within that, the routine within that, um, timing of your sleep, all these things add up to having a um, high quality sleep that leads to preventing or <clears throat> improving a lot of the aspects that you covered. Um, I guess from that, we have all, all that laid out. It's, I guess someone might need to assess whether their sleep is of good quality or not to even see if they should address these things or not. Of course, there's the subjectiveness, which is probably pretty, pretty accurate. You know, we wake up like, I feel tired. It's like, okay, well, sleep's probably shitty. We could you know, easily say that. But now there's also lots of tools that we use, like uh, the aura rings and things. And it's like, my aura ring said I had shitty sleep, but I feel fine. It's like, well, is, is it inaccurate? Or, you know, should you just go off how you feel subjectively? Um, I guess maybe that would be like kind of the next thing. Like, what is a, maybe some, a checklist assessment of, is your sleep poor? And then we can get into like what you would do about it from there. I think the only thing aspect we didn't mention about like sleep restriction that I think the physique competitors can relate to, which we talked about increasing uh, caloric intake after sleep restriction or long-term and leads to increases in body weight, but also just, it could just be one night of restrictive sleep could affect um, uh, appetite signaling hormones, like uh, ghrelin, PPY, um, I don't know if you've seen anything like that, but um, a lot, I mean, it all kind of ties in like people that are dieting post-show, sleep's getting poor, but appetite's also driven up. Um, 
could be just be a low caloric intake and low body fat, but maybe the sleep aspect itself has some driver and in increase in caloric intake. Absolutely. With respect to hunger hormones, the research isn't that clear. Okay. Uh, one of the studies has looked at leptin and ghrelin. And some studies have found that when people don't get enough sleep, leptin goes down and ghrelin goes up, both of which you would expect to increase food intake. But overall, they don't consistently show that. What not many studies have done is look at the ratio between different hunger hormones. And I'd speculate that that might be more relevant to changes in hunger. Now, with that said, there are other hunger hormones, of course. So as an example of this, there are endocannabinoids that contribute to food intake. And those seem to be affected by insufficiency based on the limited research done so far in a way that would contribute to food intake. However, I think one thing that likely does play a role here is changes in patterns of electrical activity in the brain. And when someone hasn't had enough sleep, you tend to see increased activity in brain regions that relate to food seeking behavior and the rewarding properties of food in response to the presentation of food in front of someone. So this is likely something that's occurring centrally and that likely leads to, to non homeostatic or hedonic eating. Okay. So spoken largely about things like calories consumed so far, but it's important to recognize that this isn't just an energy balance consideration. What I mean by that is that it's likely that people will gravitate to more energy dense, rewarding food. So all of a sudden those donuts seem more appetizing than they otherwise would have. And that was a very entertaining study published years ago, looking at what happens when you give people a fixed amount of money to spend in a mock supermarket after sufficient sleep or insufficient sleep. And when people were short on sleep, they bought more total calorie, calories worth of food than when they'd had enough sleep. Uh, I think that hints at what's going on here. So it's probably not all hormonally driven, but, but some of it's occurring centrally. So with that said, I'll, I'll turn to what you mentioned before that, which is what healthy sleep looks like. And like you were saying, I think we intuitively know what it is. And I really don't want to seem like I'm overcomplicating things. And I think sometimes probably have a tendency of doing that. But healthy sleep is basically waking up, feeling refreshed, having good function during the daytime. So being able to remember things, not having to reread lines of text and so on. Feeling sleepy at roughly the same time each evening. Falling asleep relatively quickly and typically that would be 30 minutes or less. Not waking too frequently during the night, not waking for long periods. So that might be 30 minutes or less of wakefulness once you've fallen asleep. And then waking up at roughly the same time each day, ideally without an alarm clock. But there are certainly times at which alarms have their use, in particular in the context of insomnia. And then with respect to sleep duration, as I mentioned, for most adults, seven to nine hours per night is recommended. I'll add that if you look at pretty much any health outcome of interest, risk of obesity, risk of cardiovascular disease, risk of neurodegenerative conditions, it's generally the seven hour group that has the lowest risk of those diseases. 
Mm-hmm. So if there, was, if there was one number that I, I think is probably one to point at as, as being what's optimal on average, it's seven hours, but the amount of sleep that you need over the course of your life changes. Infants are first born, they can sleep 18 hours a day. And by the time people are elderly, they might only need seven to eight hours per night for optimal function. In the same way that the timing of sleep shifts over the lifespan and so on too. But also your sleep needs change over a shorter time frame. As an example of this, if you're exposed to some sort of pathogen that your immune system starts to fight, if the total viral load in the case of a virus isn't too high then the viral exposure will tend to increase your sleep and, and increase certain stages of sleep temporarily. And the reason for that is that in much the same way that's very important to the consolidation of memories in the brain, deep sleep is important to the formation of memory in the immune system. So it's the adaptive branch of the immune system, which is what contributes T cells and B cells, which protect you against viruses such as the coronavirus. So you get exposed to some pathogen. If it's not too high a load of the pathogen, you sleep a bit more. Likewise, if you've just had two weeks off training after a show and you start training again, you might find that as you start training again, you sleep slightly more or you need slightly more sleep. You look at resistance training. It's great for sleep. That's the good news, provided that your volume is appropriate and your intensity is appropriate too. If you look at all the studies done so far, resistance training speeds the rate to which people fall asleep. People sleep slightly more efficiently. They feel like they slept better and they sleep slightly longer too. So an appropriate dose of exercise is great for sleep. But of course, the, the flip side of that is that if you're going through an overreaching training block, then sleep efficiency often goes out the window. And that hasn't really been shown by scientists in the context of resistance training, but it has been shown in the context of other types of exercise. And we all know that that's true of resistance training as well. No, I think that's, that's, that's helpful to like lay out that, what should your good sleep be? I think, and like you said, I think going off a lot of the subjective measures of how your sleep quality is, is, is probably enough for most people and I know that like the nerds out there were like crunching numbers and data and it can get a little bit over the top. But I think still like subjectively is, is still like a good key to go with. Um, and we talked about, you know, you talked about what that would look like, right? So getting to sleep within 30 minutes, falling asleep around the same time, waking up without the alarm clock around the same time. Maybe you wake up once to, to pee or up for 30 minutes, you can fall back to sleep and you have on average just seven hours of actual maybe sleep time so that's kind of like the i guess the uh the overview of what maybe good quality sleep would be and how you would feel throughout the day you should feel refreshed and focused um and so i guess there's a lot of people that won't have that and so i guess where would you where would you be the starting point and of course each one of these issues probably has something to address within it um would, would you say the starting point would be like starting from hey i had i'm going to improve my sleep Dr. Potter, I woke up today. What can I do from now to bedtime in the daytime phase to set myself up for a good night's sleep? And then maybe we can get into from there the actual sleep aspect of I can't fall asleep. What do I do? Or I'm waking up. What do I do? But um, would you say maybe starting that conversation makes sense from the daytime of what we can 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Obviously, the, the way that you do this with an individual is slightly different, but I'll speak in very general terms. And what you do with the client, say, is, is do some sort of needs analysis in which you're trying to get information about their sleep, maybe using a sleep diary, possibly in conjunction with a wearable. You're assessing their training. You're, you're assessing their nutrition and so on. But if we think about this in, in a chronological way, then starting with the daytime, one variable that's very important is your patterns of exposure to light and in particular to daylight. The reason is that your body's clock, which shapes the timing of your biology, when you feel sleepy, when you feel most alert, but also when you're strongest in the gym, when your immune system is most formidable against those pathogens and so on, timing of that clock is mostly shaped by your patterns of light exposure. Specifically, if you expose yourself to lots of high intensity light that contains lots of short wavelengths, and that's the type of light that you would get outdoors at roughly midday on a sunny day. If you expose yourself to that type of light between about two hours before you wake up or you'd naturally wake up in the morning and two hours after you'd naturally wake up, that will tend to shift your body's clock earlier. And if you expose yourself to that type of light late in the day, so possibly between maybe four hours before when you typically fall asleep and two hours after when you typically fall asleep, that will tend to shift your body's clock later. And the relevance of that, of course, is that a lot of people, especially night owls, have to wake to alarms in the morning. And so for them, if they can increase their exposure to that type of light at the start of their day, then that's going to anchor their body's clock earlier and it's going to let them fall asleep earlier thereby prolonging their sleep opportunity, getting more total sleep, and hence experiencing the benefits of that sleep. So that's a little bit about line. I won't go into too much detail on any of these, but another, of course, is exercise. I mentioned earlier the benefits of strength training and also the fact that if you do too high load training, then you might interfere with your ability to sleep well. One relevant variable here is the timing of your training and a key determinant of how strong you are across the 24-hour cycle is your body temperature your core body temperature has quite a high amplitude rhythm and it tends to reach its peak in the late biological afternoon which for a lot of people is around 5 p.m and if you compare how much force someone can produce at the highest point in the core body temperature rhythm, so let's say it's 5 p.m., the lowest point, let's say that that's 5 a.m., then on average, there's something like an 8% difference in how much force someone can produce. Wow. If that's which you train will influence the clocks in your skeletal muscles because every single cell in your body has its own molecular clock, which governs when it's building new structures, when it's breaking down structures, that type of thing. If you train in the morning, then you're going to influence the clocks in your skeletal muscles such that the difference between how strong you are in the morning and how strong you are at your highest core body temperature later in the afternoon won't be as big. If you train at 5 p.m. when you'd expect to be strongest, then the difference between the low point and the high point is going to be even bigger, if that makes sense. Mm, okay. 
about optimizing your training acutely, then there's a little bit of quite weak evidence that it's best to train in the afternoon. You don't want to train too late in the day, however. And there was a meta-analysis published on this a few years ago, and it suggested that training within four hours of bedtime doesn't actually influence sleep in a meaningful way. However, the types of exercise that people did in those studies wasn't in any way representative of the types of training that you guys do. And importantly, when, when you train, it's not just the acute stimulus from lifting weights, which is going to increase the synthesis of sympathetic nervous system hormones, adrenaline, noradrenaline, that type of thing. And it's going to raise your core body temperature. It's going to increase cortisol production too, and so on, all of which could contribute to you being awake further into the night. But when you train, you're also exposed to bright lights in the gym. There's often loud music. And all of those stimuli can negatively affect your sleep. So as a rule of thumb, I, I typically recommend that people not do any training any later than, than three or four hours before bedtime, ideally. And I know that some people can only squeeze in late in the day. And if that's the case, then there are things that you can do that we can get to later to speed the rate at which you calm down after training might thereby help you fall asleep faster another would this be a, just a mention on i know it's a deep deep dive alone mm. is on like if they were training in the evening they would probably potentially be taking a, a pre-workout of caffeine or something like this I did. <laughs> <laughs> simple answer don't do it <laughs> just don't do it we'll, we'll, we'll come back to, to nutrition later fair enough but, there are, there are free workouts that don't contain caffeine. Better option. Okay, so another variable as we consider the daytime is mental stress. And obviously much of the time we can't control what stresses us out. However, if you find distressful news worrying, then you can control when you check the news. And if you have some ability to influence certain stresses in your life, maybe it's a difficult conversation with your partner, then it's probably better to have that in the middle of your waking day than it is to have that too close to bed. Because otherwise you're going to go to bed and you're going to be ruminating about whatever you're concerned about and you're going to find it hard to fall asleep. And that type of pre-bed worry is probably the main contributor to most people struggling to fall asleep at the start of the night. Okay, so another one, as you touched on, is nutrition. And with respect to caffeine, the way that caffeine affects sleep is really twofold. One mechanism is that if you consume caffeine very late in the day, then there's a little bit of evidence showing that you can actually shift your body's clock a little bit later. And to do that, you need something like three milligrams of caffeine within a few hours of your normal bedtime. And the other mechanism is that caffeine is an adenosine receptor antagonist to all the adenosine receptors. And adenosine is just a substance that accumulates in the brain during wakefulness that promotes sleep. So from the moment you woke up today, adenosine and some related metabolites have been accumulating in your brain. When you go to bed at night, those promote sleep and they in particular promote deep sleep. And then while you sleep, the adenosine in the brain 
starts to decline and then hopefully you wake up the next day with low levels of adenosine so little pressure to sleep when you feel good and you feel restored so by blocking the interaction of that sleepiness signal with its receptors caffeine makes people more alert and that sometimes is helpful but obviously consuming too much caffeine too late in the day can be problematic so what's a reasonable amount of caffeine to consume i generally recommend that people don't consume any caffeine any later than about eight hours before bedtime if possible. And with respect to dose, the issue of course with caffeine is that if you're just interested in acute performance, so let's say that you had a powerlifting meet coming up, you didn't care about how you slept that night, you just want a PB. If that's the case, then it might make sense to consume a higher dose of caffeine because there's some, something of a dose response relationship between caffeine intake and strength and power performance. But there's a sweet spot, which is probably for most people somewhere between about three and six milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight. But on a regular basis, I probably wouldn't consume more than about three milligrams of caffeine per kilo of body weight. So if you're 100 kilos, that's 300 milligrams of caffeine. 300 milligrams of caffeine is roughly the amount that's in five instant coffees or two store-bought Americanos. It's something in that sort of range. And what I will add is that I think small amounts of caffeine are fine. And some people who have very loud voices in the world of sleep research and public education on sleep have condoned caffeine and said that you should avoid it at all costs. And there is some work that was published not long ago showing that if, you, if you're a healthy sleeper and you consume a relatively large amount of caffeine, but you stop by about eight hours before bedtime, your sleep's absolutely fine. It's, it's basically exactly the same as it otherwise would be. So don't lose sleep over your caffeine intake, but just be reasonable about it and just watch for those times when you're starting to feel tired and you're relying on caffeine more and more. And the other thing that I'll add is that if you just love coffee or you love tea, then late in the day, decaf is always an option. And in a decaf coffee, there are maybe seven milligrams of caffeine. So you, you can have that later in the day, and it's, it's pretty unlikely to affect your sleep. Although some caffeine-containing items do have other stimulatory compounds. Take the example of cocoa. Cocoa is loaded with theobromine, and it has more theophylline than it does caffeine as well. All of those are in the same family of methylxanthines, but theobromine is quite a lot less stimulatory than caffeine, maybe something like three to five times less stimulatory. So just bear that in mind. But but in the case of coffee and tea, I think the decaf in the day is, is fine for most people. So the other aspect of nutrition, of course, is what you're eating and drinking. And with respect to your your macronutrition, I think you want to go to bed neither hungry nor full. And John, I know that I'm saying this and <laughs> you've been competing recently, so probably rubbing salt in the wounds. But for the most part, the goal should be to go to bed neither hungry nor full because if, you're, if you've eaten too much too late, then your core body temperature will be higher than it otherwise would be. And a fall in your core temperature and your brain temperature in particular helps you fall asleep. So if you have a lot of food late in the day, then you can certainly negatively affect your ability to, to sleep at night. However, if you go to bed hungry, then hunger promotes food-seeking behavior, 
and does lead to some hormonal changes that are alerting to, and that probably contributes to some of the wakefulness that bodybuilders experience late in contest prep. So I think finishing your final meal of the day, probably no later than two hours before bedtime is, is generally a good strategy. I know some people will have a protein shake immediately before bed. I think if, if your sole goal is to accrue as much muscle mass as possible, that probably sometimes has its place, but I'd probably just keep it to, to protein and not much, uh, not much else. So I think that that's probably the fundamentals of nutrition and sleep, but that's a huge subject itself. And we, we could easily do multiple podcasts about that. So I'll leave it at that. I'll, I'll mention alcohol briefly, but I'm guessing that not many people will be big drinkers. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah. Yeah. It, it would be very rare few, so it wouldn't have as much probably yeah. application to the, to our, our group that listen. Well, I'll ditch alcohol and I'll, I'll bring us to, to the pre-bed time. You, you, what I, what you might consider would be. Weed would be a huge one. Yeah. THC. Is that what you just said, Luke? Yeah, so like THC variants, like Delta-8 and using weed to help with like sedation before bed, like that's very large in our community. Like 25 milligrams THC before bed, like very common in the larger bodybuilders to help with sleep and stuff like that. Very, very common. I come across it probably like 70% of the time in my clientele. Interesting. Okay. So it's just not that well studied. And the reason, of course, is due to, to change in the legality of marijuana over time. So there was some preliminary research decades ago, and then there were several decades in which there was next to no research on cannabinoids in sleep. And more recently, there's been a resurgence of interest into that subject. So briefly, I think if, if you look at the different cannabinoids, then DVD is probably for most people a slightly slightly better sleep aid than THC. Based on the limited research so far, there's an interesting dose response relationship between TBD intake and its effects on sleep. And it seems specifically that lower doses, so something like 30 milligrams, might actually be weekly wake promoting and slightly higher doses, so north of 100 milligrams might be more sleep promoting. And then with respect to THC, people have looked at it in certain clinical populations. And there are rare instances in which it's been shown to have some positive effects. And it does tend to help people fall asleep faster. But later in the night, people tend to get unstuck. And one of the issues, of course, is that these drugs can be habit forming. People increasingly rely on them over time. And also they, they lead to tolerance and withdrawal effects. So whenever you're thinking about sleep aids, you, you need to consider all of those things. And you also need to consider different off-target effects too. So one of the beneficial consequences or, or advantageous consequences of consumption of some of these is that they might help a little bit with pain relief and anxiety. So if that's the reason you're taking them, then there are other things that can help with that that are probably better sleep aids that probably don't have the downsides. And then another key consideration is the purity of the different substances that you're consuming and hasn't been well studied, but my impression is that a lot of 
off the shelf, over the counter CBD and THC products are probably are probably contaminated or certainly don't contain what they claim they contain on the label. That's true of many supplements. There was a study published a few years ago looking at melatonin supplements and they varied from having way less melatonin than the amount on the label to having more than 400% more than the amount on the label. Wow. That's, that's shown from many other dietary supplements too. So just bear in mind that these products aren't regulated in the way that pharmaceutical ones are. But with that said, I do think that some cannabinoids might have some potential. And there was an interesting paper published quite recently by some Australian researchers looking at a synthetic cannabinoid and use of that to sublingual cannabinoid. I don't think that you can get it over here in the UK. I don't know about the US, but it's got some funny acronym name, something like ZCL101. That's probably something like that. And in people who have insomnia, it was actually quite an effective sleep aid going by the, the PSG, and that's the gold standard way of measuring sleep, going by the PSG assessments of sleep. People fell asleep much faster. They slept much longer. They felt like their sleep was restorative. Quite a few people did have some very mild side effects, certainly a lot more than the placebo group. But there, there certainly is potential there. And also there are some other over-the-counter products that are related to CBD and THC that might have some potential. So one of them that comes to mind is PEA, palmitoyl ethanolamide. And there have been a couple of studies looking at that and its effects on sleep so far. One of the issues with it is that it's not very bioavailable. There's a micronized version of it called Levagen, I think is the patented name. And taking 600 milligrams of that twice a day has been shown to help people with certain types of pain sleep better. Specifically with a type of neuropathic pain, it might have been carpal tunnel syndrome, something like that. Yeah. I think some of them have some potential, but I, I would go to other sleep aids way before cannabis and, and bear those yeah. in mind. Yeah. Cause anecdotally for me, I see a lot of times that like on the acute response, I can improve sleep, but then like specifically for the people who are taking it for like anxiety type stuff in the chronic, it actually drives that anxiety so much higher because they're now falling dependent upon it. So like from an anecdotal perspective, that's definitely what I see. And I know we're about to get into like right before bed, but I wanted to, to bring this to kind of bring it in. Um, one of the things that like I'll use too, that I think there's some evidence for is, uh, being outside with like horizons so like being able to take like a walk outside and have that lateral eye movement with like the sun rising and the sun setting and like its utility and helping us set our clock and like if you've seen that be effective um as we kind of transition to like the sleep mind habits yeah so there's a lot of discussion about this at the moment and a lot of that discussion is based on what's called preclinical research so research of non-human animals and that's interesting. It's informative. We have to understand mechanisms that are at play. But it doesn't always translate to humans. And I think pragmatically, just spending more time outdoors during daylight is where most people should start, as opposed to worrying about getting outside at dawn and dusk, respectively. Gotcha. With that said, dawn and dusk are special times of day. If you look across different animal kingdoms, then there seem to be these rush hours of activity at dawn and dusk. It's that time when nocturnal animals are, are awake still 
diurnal animals are starting to be awake and then you also have other animals that are known as crepuscular meaning that they're most active at dawn and dusk so think of deer so there's all of that activity going on at those times of day and similarly there are also transcriptional rush hours going on in the body at those times of day so if you look at patterns of gene expression across the 24-hour day then around those times you see a quite dramatic increase in expression of various genes relative to other times of day, which is intriguing. So <laughs> there certainly is magic going on at those times, but I think practically a lot of people in modern contexts just spend too much time indoors. We spend something like 88% of our time indoors nowadays. And the problem is that left to their own devices, our body's clocks aren't precise 24 hours. They tend to be longer than 24 hours. And that means that if you don't spend enough time outdoors getting that daylight that synchronizes the clock each day, then your clocks lose alignment with 24 hour day. And most people increasingly drift to the nighttime. So for night owls, just spending more time outdoors during the day is helpful. Don't worry too much about the timing. And I think if you're spending at least an hour outdoors each day during daylight, then you're going to get the lion's share of the benefits. And finally to add, one thing, there have been really interesting experiments which people go camping and they're not exposed to any artificial light during those times. And what you find is that at the start of going camping, there's a huge difference between the early birds and the night owls in the times at which they go to sleep. But after just a few days of camping, they're pretty much all on more or less the same schedule, which is quite tightly synchronized the natural light dark cycle. So again, Think about the fact they're spending loads of time outdoors during the day. That's the thing that people should be most concerned about. But if you are a real night owl, then getting outdoors into daylight as soon as possible after you wake up is going to be particularly helpful. Like for people that are indoors, like I've seen these kind of like daylight artificial, uh, they try to emulate that. Like, Are those beneficial? Like something that you could use if you do have to work at a computer a long time? Of course, you could work maybe by a window or something. Um, but is there something that could be helpful like that? Yeah. So a couple of things to mention. One is working by a window is helpful. There have been interesting studies in which people look at office workers and people who work closer to windows tend to sleep better. And if you move people closer to windows, they tend to sleep better too. There's definitely something to that. And then with respect to bright light therapy that you were touching on, that, that definitely has its place in certain contexts. And I think, the most important of those is seasonal affective disorder. So if winter rolls around and you've got short days and very long nights and you start feeling sluggish and out of sorts, then getting a bright light therapy lamp that emits at least 10,000 lux, one lux is the amount of light that's emitted by a candle held one meter from the eye. So it's the unit of light intensity. But getting a lamp that emits at least 10,000 lux and using that for maybe half an hour within a couple of hours waking up if, if you're uh, if you're affected by seasonal affective disorder can be helpful for sure but i think for most people probably not necessary just those rare instances and, and it's most helpful as is true of many of these types of gadgets when you're you're forced to be inside for whatever reason but for most people that's not the case gotcha okay yeah so i guess that sets up a lot of the daylight aspect. Um, and as then we're like kind of approach the evening and uh, I guess setting up your evening 
which you mentioned, we've mentioned some few things that of course, like you're now starting to limit daylight light type exposure, maybe blue light exposure. Um, I think that probably gets into, you know, you're, we already kind of mentioned timing. Obviously you want to be going to bed at this, this same time, but then probably setting up the, the environment around your sleep to be sleep promoting itself too. Would that, do you think that flows well for another area to, to hit on? People don't have the right sleep environment, you know, the TV's blaring in the room and uh, there's lights coming through their windows or whatever it may be. Or, um, how would you set up, that, I guess, that environment for them nighttime-wise? <clears throat> so the first thing to mention is you need to give yourself time to wind down at the end of the day. And an analogy that's often thrown around in the field of sleep scientists is you can think of it as being a bit like driving and then going to park your car, driving really quickly all day. And all of a sudden you're at your house, you try and park your car, you haven't had enough time to slow down, then bad things are gonna happen. Likewise, if you've been busy all day and you've had your foot on the accelerator, and then all of a sudden it's bedtime in half an hour, and you try and go to bed then, you're not gonna be sleepy and you're gonna lie in bed awake, which is itself a bad thing as we can touch on later. So give yourself probably one to two hours in which to wind down. And at the start of this time, make sure that you start to reduce the light you're exposed to. That could mean dimming the lights. It could mean switching off some lights. The most important lights to attend to are the overhead lights because the light sensitive cells that influence the time of your body's clock are concentrated in the lower part of the retina. The most sensitive to overhead light. So maybe switching off the overhead lights and just keeping on lamps, for example, makes a lot of sense. And you, of course, want to do away with anything that's stressful within this time. So you want to avoid difficult conversations or exposure to stressful media. But good activities at this time include having a hot shower or hot bath for maybe 10 minutes or so, roughly one to two hours before bedtime. The reason being that if you do that, then you're going to raise the temperature of your skin by a couple of degrees. And counterintuitively, that's going to help you radiate heat out from your core at a faster rate. So if you have a hot shower, let's say it's 40 degrees Celsius for 10 minutes, then you'll tend to fall asleep slightly faster and also feel like you slept better but objectively your sleep efficiency will likely be slightly higher too. It's a really simple tip. And then once you've had your shower, you should actually put your socks on, which sounds really strange for a lot of people. But the reason is that it's particularly important to keep your hands and feet relatively warm because they're dense with a type of blood vessel called anastomosis. And that means that you can gain and lose heat very quickly through your hands and feet. And there have been experiments in which people wear heated socks or put their feet into warm baths and those experiments show that people fall asleep faster so pop your socks on afterwards and then at this time of course listening to relaxing music is a really good option reading a book is a good option you could watch tv what i would say though is if you watch tv then you need to be cognizant of time passing so limit yourself to only watching one episode of something for example you don't want to be too stimulating either watching something which is familiar and entertaining and lighthearted, but not riveting, it can be fine. 
don't worry too much about light exposure if you've been outside during the day. I, I think that tends to be over-egged by a lot of people. But I wouldn't recommend TV above listening to music or reading a book, for example. And then one key behavior that I think is helpful for a lot of people is turning the smartphone off at least half an hour before bed. And there are several reasons for that. One is you've got a device close to your face that's emitting light. Again, it's, it's likely not a big issue, but it could have a small alerting and body clock delaying effect. Another is the content you're exposed to. Another is your loss of sense of time passing. A lot of people just scroll through social media feeds. They look up and then all of a sudden it's 25 minutes later and they think, what happens to time? So all of those things can push sleep later and interfere with sleep quality. And there have been many studies looking at problematic smartphone use and sleep, and there's clearly a strong relationship between the two. Related to that, there have also been studies in which people stop using their smartphones at least half an hour before bed. And they fall asleep faster, they sleep slightly longer, they sleep slightly more efficiently. And as a result of those changes in their sleep, the next day their cognitive function is slightly better. So specifically their working memory improves. So turn your smartphone off, leave it out of the bedroom, maybe leave it on the kitchen counter and only turn it on the next day when you're up and awake and ready to go. And then that brings us to the bedroom itself. Bedroom, you want to be cool, dark and comfortable. And noise is something that you mentioned earlier. That can negatively affect sleep, of course. And there are simple ways around that. So one would be you could use earplugs. If you use a fan, then that might help drown out noises that would otherwise wake you up. And it can also keep you cool, which is a good thing. I went, I went to a, an Airbnb in Pittsburgh for a competition. And uh, some people had complained in the reviews about the street, the noise. But all the rooms of this Airbnb, they had a um, like a noise, what would, you, what would you call that? It wasn't like a noise canceller, but ba basically it gave like, you could pick the options of like, they have like a ceiling fan or a thunderstorm um, or, or just static, you know, which uh, some people, I, I guess they sleep better that, but it kind of drowned out the other noise as well. I like it. The thunderstorm was like, going through like the perfect storm i don't know if you remember that movie it was like way too intense like holy shit there's a tsunami outside but the other ones were helpful um so yeah that 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 could be i guess one aspect if you like that blanket noise um yeah I find something that works for you and then there's no there's no hard and fast rule but but all those different things can have their place and, and people are looking at specific types of noise and their effects on sleep, but don't get too sidetracked by that. Yeah. Keeping the bedroom dark and you could wear an eye mask, having blackout blinds can be a real game changer for people who live in urban areas. And then with respect to your bed itself, your mattress is the most important item of furniture you own. And I think one thing that's very relevant to you guys is that People have different mattress preferences. And if, if you're 100 kilos or 110 kilos and your partner is 60 kilos, then you're going to need quite different mattresses to sleep at your best. 
heavier people will tend to need firmer mattresses because they're more supportive. You can get mattresses that have different firmnesses on either side of them. That's just something to bear in mind. And another thing that's relevant to mattresses is their ability to wick away heat. And spring mattresses are much better at this than foam mattresses are because foam tends to store heat. So it's probably better for most people to go for a spring mattress or a hybrid mattress than just a foam mattress, if that's doable. And then you also, of course, want pillows that are breathable and, and bed sheets that are breathable because if you get too hot at night, then you can't really do much about it. But if you get too cold, then it's quite easy to, to rectify that. I think those are probably the, the keys with respect to the bedroom and then otherwise just doing away with devices. So anything that emits light, you might want an alarm clock that emits a small amount of red light. That's fine, but you don't want some bright blue alarm clock that's producing all that light that's waking you up. And then I'll just give a couple of recommendations about what you can do if, if they're really struggling with their sleep. So one is if you spend lots of time lying in bed awake, then it's really important to embrace something that's called the stimulus control of behavior. The idea is just that certain stimuli need us to engage in certain behaviors. You're driving, you're approaching a red light, you reflexively put your foot on the brake. Stimulus, the red light, is leading to a behavior, braking. And what happens in people who struggle with sleep is they learn to associate their bed with being awake. They need to reassociate the bed with somewhere that they're asleep. And the way they do that is save the bed for sex and sleep only, and if you go to bed, you should only ever go to bed when you're actually sleepy. So even if you've decided that 10.30 p.m. is your bedtime, if you're not sleepy at 10.30 p.m., you should not go to bed. You can wait until you're sleepy to go to bed. And then if you wake up in the evening and you don't fall asleep within 15 minutes or so, and don't watch the clock, just go by your sense of time passing, then get out of bed and go and do something relaxing in a different room in dim lighting and then only return to bed when you're actually sleepy. So you might just go to a different room and, and read a book, for instance. So that can be really helpful. And then there are also certain relaxation exercises that people can try to help them fall asleep faster. If you're trying to force sleep and you're lying in bed and you're, you're focusing on the fact that you're awake and you're telling yourself to sleep, then you should try something called paradoxical intention. And the idea here is just that what you resist persists. So ironically, if, if you instead lie in bed and gently keep your eyes open, and as time passes, just congratulate yourself for, for staying awake but relaxed, then you'll probably fall asleep quite quickly doing that. If you wake up in the middle of the night and, and you have a feeling of stress or anxiety, if you have that sort of cortisol laden sensation, then deep diaphragmatic breathing through the nose can be very helpful. And you probably want to work towards breathing something like six times a minute. Shouldn't be forced or anything like that, but just focusing on breathing through the belly is very simple, but very effective for a lot of people in that particular situation. And then another tip that a lot of athletes use, and they don't just use this to help with sleep, but they can just use it if they're feeling that works up in general, is progressive muscle relaxation. And this just entails 
sequentially scanning through your body, contracting muscles, holding the contraction, and then as you relax, exhaling. So you might start with your toes, contract your toes, hold the contraction for about six seconds, and then as you relax, exhale, and then you work up through your calves, through your thighs, through your hips, torso, etc., until you're up at your head. So that can be very good if someone has a lot of bodily tension that's interfering with their sleep. And then finally, if you wake up or if it's the start of the night and you're struggling to sleep and your, your mind is just stuck in a loop, you're just in some sort of endless cognitive loop, then visualization can be really helpful. And if you use this, then what you want to do is just practice it during the daytime first and picture a scene in which you're content. It's just relaxing. Maybe you're in a meadow with your wife and it's a sunny day and you just think, think about what you can hear and what you can see, what you can feel on your skin and how you feel. And that can get you out of that cognitive loop and, and help you fall asleep too. I think those are all extremely helpful. And I think everyone at some level can relate to that, especially I've had a lot of sleep issues in, in prep, especially like laying to bed, you're thinking about your routine you need to go through for posing or you're like re-visualizing re this approaching the stage and getting on stage. And it's like, man, what do I, what do I even, what am I supposed to think about to help myself go to sleep? And uh, that's what I've always had come to mind. So like visualizing some type of other relaxing, maybe something outside of bodybuilding um, and how those, you know, those feelings and the sun on you or whatever it may be, might be a thing to, to visualize. But I think this gets down back to like what you originally said of all these tips you've gone through is first starting with your needs analysis, right? Because you might not need to do all of them. It might just be one or two and then to address to know where you're at. So I think for anyone listening, like obviously we have to kind of go general just to cover a lot, but for, for the individual, I, I hope someone listening to this would pick up, you know, something that's clicking for them. Maybe it is they have high stress going to bed or they're arguing with their partner and that's something to address earlier in the day. Or uh, maybe it is like they're waking up in the middle of the night and then they're focused on the, they go, I've heard this, this, this client this past week, they get out to pee and they, they're worried about going back to bed because they're not going to be able to fall asleep. That's the thought in mind. So for this individual, maybe it's, Hey, go, go to another relaxing part of the room. Don't go to bed yet. Do a relaxing activity till you feel sleepy, then go return to bed. So I think in, in all that you covered, there's something for everyone that could maybe have a takeaway to apply if they're having those sleep issues, which I know Dr. Potter, that was like probably like really brazed over, for how much depth you can go into for each area. And I know we've already been like a little over an hour, which I think uh, covering too much in too long period of time could be overwhelming for like listeners as well, which there's stuff we didn't get into that I would, lo I would love to get into. Yeah, maybe a part two if you're willing to um, come back. Uh, I, I, I do work with a lot of shift workers and just life in general, people's shifts change which that's one I think maybe would just be only on covering just shift work. Um, I think yeah. that's a really interesting topic and hard to navigate for a lot of people. Um, but Especially how impactful and progress this is. It's yeah. just so impactful, man. It's like a game changer for most people. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I'd be happy to. That sounds great. Awesome. Do you, um, I just, if you want to give people like uh, listeners, uh, where can we contact you more at if, or can we even contact you, do consulting, um, and then maybe social media aspects to follow you? Yeah, of course. And just before I get to that, I'll, I'll just reiterate what you said there, John. I think it's, it's really important to beat people where they're at and to not try and change too much at once. Because in these types of conversations, I'm, I'm trying to share lots of information that's hopefully helpful, but you have to cover quite a lot of ground to come out with things that are relevant to hopefully everyone who's listening. Because different factors interfere with different people's sleep but that can be overwhelming. So I'd say if something resonates with you that we've discussed, then pick one thing and work on that for a bit. And once you've ingrained it as a habit, you can then move on to something else. And just related to behavior change, there are, there are lots of resources out there. And I, I particularly like the work of a scientist named Susan Mickey, but her work is quite academic. And I think for, for most people, books such as Atomic Habits, which you guys have probably read can be really helpful. If you haven't read that and you're looking to change health related behaviors, then I think that's a really good starting point. So with that said, my own social media, I would point people to resilient nutrition. I'm the chief science officer there and it's a UK based nutrition company that formulates nutrition products. And we've got a, a new product coming out shortly, which might be out by the time this podcast goes up. We are only in the UK at the moment. Hopefully we'll be in the US sometime soon, but we do also hopefully put out information that's helpful related to nutrition and whatnot. Some of which is very relevant to your audience. And I wrote a free ebook called The Principles of Resilient Nutrition. That's not physique focused, but the principles within it, I think are relevant to everyone. I hope they are. So check out resilientnutrition.com and we're at Resilient Nuts on social media. My personal social media is at greg potter phd and i'm probably most active on instagram but let's be honest not particularly active on anything so <laughs> feel free to reach out to me there and then i do have a website gregpotterphd.com that you can use there's a contact form on there if you want to reach out there too so man, I'll put that all in the show notes as well. So they, if, if you guys want to look up Dr. Potter and get more information, y'all can look down in the descriptions below, but uh, we'll, we'll end it there. Dr. Potter, again, thank you so much for coming on. Sleep has been an area that I've wanted to touch on and just start that conversation with my listeners and then try to see what questions they have and then dive in further. So again, uh, thank you so much. This is the, j3u podcast and we will speak to you next time